0: Hey, Rachel, Alpha Flight works for Department H, right?
1: Alpha Flight was organized by Department H, but their actual affiliation with the department has been on again, off again. They've been laid off a few times and spent a while operating independently. Why do you ask, Miles?
0: I'm trying to figure out how they connect to Weapon X. That was a Canadian project, right?
1: Weapon X was a joint American-Canadian project that grew out of the much larger Weapon Plus program, which has at various times involved the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Germany, and Mr. Sinister, who's basically nationally affiliated with Mad Science at this point, (laughs) operating under yet another pseudonym. Its Canadian affiliation is through Department K, which is basically the Department of Shady cover-ups. Department H was where the superhuman operatives were concentrated, so Weapon X used it as a recruiting pool, but as far as I know, that's the only direct link.
0: Okay, so Department H, Department K. Uh, What about Director X? What's his connection?
1: The shady, unnamed Director of Department H? As far as I know, it's actually a coincidence. Uh, The weapon program is iterative, so like Phantom X's Weapon 13, the Stepford Cuckoos are Weapon 14, etc., and the X in Weapon X is just a Roman numeral 10, not an initial or a variable. Department H probably uses some of the technology developed in Weapon 9, which was all about battlesuits and cybernetics, but that's really just my guess. It's never been explored explicitly.
0: Okay, so does that make James Hudson, you know, Vindicator, a Weapon 1? Because he was Weapon Alpha for a while, right?
1: Weirdly, that's also just a coincidence. Weapon 1 is the super soldier project.
0: So like Captain America, Steve Rogers and Isaiah Bradley? Yep. What about Weapon Prime?
1: Oh man, Weapon Prime was a team put together by Department K to track down Northstar after he was framed for a murder. It's mostly notable for having been led by a guy with the really unfortunate codename of Tiger Strike. That's strike with a Y, by the way. But as far as I know, the name's the only direct connection to the weapon program.
0: So what about the other numbered weapons?
1: Well, weapon two was animals, never really amounted to anything. Weapon three was a creepy-ass barrister who was later captured and skinned by the Captain Britain Corps. 4 and 5 were a series of relatively unfocused experiments on ethnic minorities and other marginalized populations. Mm. 6 was a dude named Nuke, who later became a minor supervillain. 7 was Vietnam War experiments on soldiers. 8 was sleeper agents. 11 is still pretty mysterious, and 12 onward are mostly nano-sentinel tech, with the exception of 14, which is a bunch of clones of Emma Frost designed as a telepathic net to capture the Phoenix Force. Okay. Oh, oh wait. And Weapon 16, which is basically a viral religion. What?! Rachel Edidin.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes. And
1: we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the 14th episode of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: So last week, we wrapped up the Dark Phoenix saga, probably the most iconic and maybe one of the best, if not the best, storylines in X-Men history.
1: Go read X-Men 137 if you haven't. We've been saying this for three episodes, and I'm going to say it one more time, because... It's that good, you should go read it.
0: This week is sort of, not exactly the fallout from that, but it's the X-Men going a little bit more low-key. Just sort of fighting a random collection of villains, having some uh, character moments come out. Just sort of adjusting to the new dynamic of a team post-Phoenix and post-Cyclops.
1: At the beginning of Claremont's run, we talked about how he took a few issues and a few arcs to kind of get the feel for the team and reestablish the dynamic of, of the new characters. That happens again after the Dark Phoenix saga. You've got, you know, a sequence of maybe ten or so issues where they're fighting, again, minor villains. A lot of them pulled in from a um, Marvel team-up, which is another series that Claremont was writing for, and basically just kind of figuring out exactly where they stand now.
0: So before we dive too hard in, we have a few very brief announcements. Go for it, Rachel.
1: First of all, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is at long last on Twitter. Our handle is just explain the X Men with an X. We'll link to it on the site. That is where we're going to be posting most of the announcements. So if you've been looking for those on my Twitter feed, I mean, I'll still probably be retweeting a lot of them, but There is now also a dedicated podcast Twitter feed.
0: Also, we have, you may have seen this if you follow our blog, which if you don't, you should. We have a new t-shirt. It's done by uh, Chris Haley of Let's Be Friends Again, and it is glorious.
1: So a lot of you had been asking us for a Yebo t-shirt, and we wanted to do something really awesome for that if we were going to, and Chris did. It's a fantastic shirt. We also finally have a version of the Magneto Made Some Valid Points shirt that shows up on Dark Backgrounds. Yes. I'm very happy about that.
0: Definite plus there. And Rachel, you were telling me about some cool comics that you were reading that just came out or about to come out?
1: Oh, man, yeah. So there are two books I want to talk about really quickly. One is an X-book. And if you've listened to this podcast or if you know me, you know that not caring about Wolverine is kind of a defining characteristic of my relationship to X-Men. And this week, I discovered the exception to that rule. I found out about Savage Wolverine number 21, which apparently comes out this coming week on on July 16th. It's a World War I story written by John Arcudi and drawn by Joe Quinones. And apparently, what it takes specifically for me to care about current Wolverine stories is for John Arcudi to write them. But yeah, he is one of my very favorite writers, and he's specifically Fantastic at this kind of old school war story. Uh, Joe Quinones is an awesome artist and just an awesome human being. And I'm actually I'm going to buy a Wolverine book.
0: Oh, jeez, that's from our joint checking account. I'm not sure how I feel about this. And
1: you're going to have to pick it up because you're the one who works across the street from the comic shop. Ah, the things I do love. You want me to ask them to put it in an unmarked brown wrapper?
0: I can look all embarrassed, just like shove it into my jacket and just walk really uncomfortably down the street really
1: quickly. Can hide it in a Playboy on the bus. Okay, so the other one is people have asked periodically about non X books that we recommend, and this week I was lucky enough to get my hands on a. Very, very advanced preview PDF of a book called The Death Defying Dr. Mirage. It's written by Jen Van Meter, who, um, if you listened to episode 11, you may recall was my pick for writing my dream X-Men series. This is a valiant series. It starts in September. It is so good. Oh my God. I read the first issue and I'm going to spend the next, uh, let's see, it's July now, three months gnawing at the walls waiting for the second one. It's a terrific series, especially if you're looking for interesting and female-driven books, pick it up.
0: Sweet. Plugs aside, Previously on X-Men. I I never get sick of saying that. Never, ever. Like we mentioned, we are coming out of the Dark Phoenix saga, which is the biggest thing that's happened in X-Men ever, by far.
1: Very short version of how that's affected the status quo. Jean Grey is dead, Cyclops has left the team.
0: And the other part that's going to play in this time around is that a little girl, well, not that little, she's 13. She's 13. And a half. She's a teenager. Uh, named Kitty Pryde, um, she's sort of a member of the X-Men. She's going to the Xavier School. She hasn't really uh, seen, you know, combat. She hasn't seen adventure yet. Yeah, she's
1: she just- has. You she saved the X-Men from the Hellfire Club. Well,
0: yeah, but I mean, as a member of the team, she wasn't in a, In, a in an official capacity, right? Exactly. She's She's
1: sort of the ex-intern at this point.
0: Yeah, and Kitty, she's a really smart, really capable girl. She has the she, Her mutant powers just manifested. She can walk through solid matter and walk on air and other confusing things. This but, is
1: referred to as phasing.
0: So she is at the school. Now, Cyclops has left because Jean Grey died in a really tragic fashion, and he's like, hey, I need some space. I need to get my head screwed on straight. So now the team's actually being led. It had been led by Cyclops since X-Men number one, pretty much. And now it's being led by Storm. She was nominated by Xavier, I believe. And then we also on the team have Wolverine, Colossus, and Nightcrawler, who have been there since Giant Size X-Men number one. Angel's back around. He's been helping them out like around the Dark Phoenix Saga, and he's on the team at this point. And like we said, sort of Kitty Pride.
1: I want to talk about Kitty Pride a little bit. And first of all, I want to say that there is a really good chance that we're going to accidentally refer to her as Shadowcat a lot. That's the codename she's mostly associated with. Her codename at this point is Sprite.
0: Right. Xavier suggests Ariel. She hates it. Although she's going to pick
1: that up later, right? She's going to be Ariel for a while. She's had quite a few. She's Ariel during God Loves, Man Kills, right?
0: I think so. Yeah. Now, there's some stuff we're not going to be covering this time. So in the middle of the span of issues that we're going to be talking about is one of the the other big iconic X-Men storyline ever, which is Days of Future Past.
1: Right. We talked about that in connection to the, at that point, upcoming Days of Future Past movie, but we discussed the comics in a lot of detail. So if you want to hear us talk about those, again, go back to episode six. Uh, We're also pretty much going to be skipping the X-Men annual number four, Nightcrawler's Inferno. There are a couple things from that that are going to tie into what we're going to talk about, but we'll be discussing that particular story at more length in a later episode.
0: So, what happens first after the status quo is sort of attempting to reset?
1: We go to Canada.
0: And as you have learned, if you're an X-Men fan at all, Canada is terrifying and full of awful monsters and corrupt superhero groups.
1: But really nice corrupt superhero groups who who apologize when they destroy civilian infrastructure. So yeah, we start out... I like Alpha Flight. (laughs) We're back in in the
0: danger room you know because if you're going to reset the x-men status quo at least to a degree that's kind of where you want to do it introducing everyone to the characters watching them train together watching them fight an evil robot room that wants to kill them
1: and this leads to an angel in the danger room sequence because angel's been out of practice he hasn't been with the team and i love angel in the danger room sequences because angel literally does one thing he dodges flying projectiles and lasers he doesn't really fight He doesn't really rescue people all that much. Like, he mostly just dodges shit in the air.
0: And so, yeah, they're training, and he's out of practice working with the team, and he crashes into Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler almost dies. And it's like, you know, come on, Angel, you
1: had one job.
0: Seriously, your job is to not get hit with things.
1: In the air. (sighs) And to be rich and kind of pretentious.
0: Well, that too. But I want to talk a little bit about Angel here because he's joined up with the team again. And Beast was with the team for part of the Dark Phoenix saga as well. And I kind of feel like he just doesn't ever find a place with Claremont's iteration of the team. Like he's on the team, but the character's never really all that well defined. He doesn't seem to fit the current incarnation of the X-Men.
1: Yeah, I feel like the next time that we're going to see him written really compellingly and really well as the main character is going to be in uh, Louis Simonson's run on X-Factor when he's once again part of the center of that team.
0: You could certainly say the same for Iceman as well. I mean, Scott and Jean and Beast, they work okay in a Claremont book, but Angel and Iceman, not so much.
1: And Iceman's not even in this issue. Iceman is, I believe, off at college at this point.
0: A couple other minor changes, like this is where we first see Wolverine call Xavier Chuck. We also have Wolverine in the brown and orange costume he was going to wear for years. Nightcrawler's like, Wolverine, I've been meaning to ask you, why the new costume? And Wolverine just says, why not? And it's never further addressed. He just has a new costume all the this- time. There's
1: also a, we didn't know that was your name. You never asked because I guess no one pays attention to the leprechauns.
0: So the moral of the story listeners is if you're hanging out with leprechauns, ask them if there's anything you should know because they know shit like too much.
1: Does that mean Leila Miller's a leprechaun?
0: Oh man, that's just, that's going down so many uh, pathways, opening so many doors. We'll come back to that. Oh God, she's
1: going to be a cold open eventually, isn't she?
0: She's going to be like six cold opens. (laughs) So, this is sort of a, it starts out with a, a, some quiet scenes. Like, we have Kitty Pride, She's getting used to the X-Men. Now, she really hit it off with, especially Storm, and she's got a big crush on Colossus. But she's going around she's with She's arguably got
1: a big crush on Storm, too, but we'll get more into that later.
0: It depends on how sub you think the subtext is. It's true so yeah Storm takes her to this dance academy this is like this is actually a really cool character moment because so Kitty's super super smart we've already established this she's very intellectually gifted she's ahead of her peers uh, academically and intellectually
1: not particularly socially which is a detail that I really appreciate there's a long and really frustrating tradition of smart kids basically being written as tiny adults in fiction I really appreciate the extent to which Claremont stays away from that with Shadowcat she's really believable as just a very very smart 13 year old
0: and she's also A little bit self aware about it. So uh, Storm's taking her to this ballet instructor. And Kitty says that the reason she dances, the reason she likes to do this is because this is an area where she's not ahead of her peers. She can just sort of, you know, be on the same level as everyone else. And I kind of like that about her. And
1: Stevie Hunter is going to stick around. She's going to show up pretty frequently in the New Mutants because she's going to be an X-Men side character for a long time. And that's something that Claremont did over the, again, many years he wrote on this title was develop a very, very large and very interconnected cast of peripheral characters who were part of or connected to or friends of the X-Men.
0: Sure, you got Moira McTaggart, you have Peter. Corbeau, the uh, space scientist who swam across an ocean once. Um, you have. Uh- I don't
1: think he ever actually did that. We just decided that he did, but I, I, I stand by it
0: in our version of the Marvel Universe, which is the correct version, he absolutely did. Does
1: ours have a number? We should come up with a number for it eventually.
0: So anyway, yeah, Stevie's a cool character. She, At this point, she doesn't know that anything's unusual. She's just like, here's this teenage girl who wants to learn to dance. I'm a retired ballerina who hurt my leg. I can teach other people to dance. Cool. And that's really all there is to it.
1: And Storm Storm is a little bit freaked out by her because she's so far been like Kitty has has hardcore bonded to her as, as her main sort of, you know, big sister mentor figure. And Storm is really worried about Stevie usurping that role because Stevie and, and Kitty hit it off really fast.
0: Storm remains probably the most nuanced character on the team. I mean, from these disparate origins, she has all these different personality traits that you don't typically see collected in a single person, and this just adds on to that. It's awesome.
1: And we've seen before, we've talked about how artists influence the focus of the book and how how Cochran really liked Nightcrawler, so we saw a lot of Nightcrawler-centric stuff. Uh, Burns a Wolverine guy, we see a lot of Wolverine... And when it comes down to it, I think Claremont's focus, when left to its own devices, tends to, to end up on Storm a lot.
0: And, I mean, to this day, he's my favorite Storm writer. I don't think anybody's ever done Storm as well as as well as he does.
1: I have high hopes for Greg Pak.
0: Yes, yes, he's doing the solo series that's coming up. Good point. Okay, so anyway, uh, this issue isn't just going to be people running around and talking about ballet because it's an X-Men book, so there has to be punching. That's a rule. What sort of starts the the plotty part of the plot is that Wolverine, you know, he's got a moment of downtime and he tells Xavier, hey, Canada's come after me a couple of times. I mean, not the whole country, just the part of it that wears spandex. I need to just settle things with them. I'm a member of the X-Men now. Let's get this stuff to chill out.
1: And we've seen that happen a couple times. We saw Alpha Flight come down and fight the X-Men and try to get him back. And we saw the X-Men's jet taken down. Over Canadian airspace again for the same purpose. So this is this is Wolverine being like, okay, I'm going to go bury the hatchet or the claws or whatever.
0: Uh, so he heads off to Canada. As he does, Nightcrawler goes goes with him, and we learn a little bit about his past. Now, his past has been alluded to, but really, every time Wolverine's past comes up, it's a little bit more fleshed out. So at first, he was very bitter against you know the sort of general Canadian super team world for tying him down and you know using him. But in this issue, in, in this part of the storyline, we find out that uh, this couple, James and Heather Hudson, James Hudson is Vindicator, or Weapon Alpha, and we learn that Wolverine, they were sort of taking care of him, you know, they, they took him in after he, he was living as a savage for a while, or or whatever, and, you know...
1: And this Uh, was after he'd spent a long time doing black ops for the American government.
0: Although, again, Wolverine's backstory is still just beginning to be
1: fleshed out. And we're already starting to see some contradictions and confusion as far as when he got adamantium claws.
0: It only gets worse from here. So much At this point, they're
1: still implying that the claws are what was added to him, what was given to him.
0: And the skeleton, that's that's mentioned at this point, too. Um, But yeah, so he goes to meet up with Heather Hudson, and she's like, hey, you know, I I agree, you should totally bury the hatchet, but James is off superheroing, and Wolverine's like, it's cool, Nightcrawler and I will go help him superhero. Let us go superhero, Nightcrawler. And they do. We have about half Alpha Flight around at this point. We have Vindicator, Shaman, and Snowbird. Uh, we, we've seen all of them before, along with the rest of the team, the last time they tangled with the X-Men. And what it looks like is there's a big monster who's gutting people and doing terrible, terrible things in the Canadian wilds and Wolverine realizes, wait a minute, big monster gutting people in the Canadian wild?
1: Ah, this takes me back to my 1st incontinuity Marvel appearance in The Incredible Hulk numbers 180 and 181, in which I fought the Hulk and, and the Wendigo. The
0: Wendigo, exactly. Um, this was back when Wolverine was just sort of like a C-list one-off supervillain along the lines of El Tigra from early Silver X-Men or something
1: so he, he recognizes that this is the wendigo now the wendigo is a mythological creature that is what happens when a human eats human flesh
0: yeah this is like this is actual mythology this is not yeah. something that was created for the marvel universe one although... of these
1: figures very heavily into bprd as well
0: so it's, it's sort of this uh this spiritual curse that if you break the taboo of of eating human flesh then you become this monster and you're corrupted and turned into this demonic thing
1: and it's actually a big deal right now and i believe um amazing x-men
0: Uh, Yeah, yeah, Amazing X-Men, which um, Kyle and Yost just took over, Craig Kyle and Chris Yost. Uh, has a story where all of Canada is basically getting turned into Wendigos, and it's actually a really, really fun book, and I recommend you it. Because don't,
1: you don't have to eat human flesh on purpose. Like, just doing it at all is enough. Okay. So anyway, there's a Wendigo around.
0: Uh, yeah, and so they're all preparing to uh, take on the Wendigo, because the Wendigo killed this dude who was camping with his family, and in theory still has the dude's wife and infant child. The older son got away. There's actually a cool little panel of him um, in his tent, and he's you can see he's reading Fantastic Four, which brings up really all sorts of questions about continuity. <laughs> so they figure, well, with the there are still two people, this woman and this infant, who the Wendigo is probably going to eat at some point. Because that's kind of its thing. That's what it does. And it,
1: it really likes its food very fresh. So Wolverine is hopeful that they might still be alive if they can track down the Wendigo and take it out in time.
0: In the meantime, Nightcrawler is sort of getting their supplies together. And we have uh, this good moment of um, just him taking some time to grieve for Jean. And that's one thing I really like about Claremont is he never forgets about... If there's a really significant thing that happens, the characters are going to be dealing with it for a while. And Nightcrawler, as a very compassionate member of the X-Men, very soulful, of course he's going to be thinking about that.
1: Speaking of quiet moments, meanwhile, back at the x Mansion. Colossus is pulling up trees.
0: So we talk about how in this podcast we don't cover all the minor stuff, we have to gloss over some stuff. This actually is significant because of its context, even if the scene itself is just like, oh, it's a metal dude pulling up a tree. Rachel and Miles
1: explain the x Mansion yard work. Uh,
0: John Byrne is the artist on Uncanny X-Men at this point. Claremont's the writer, of course, and he's been working with John Byrne, who is uh, Dave Cockrum's successor. Byrne is awesome. We love his work.
1: And he is, in addition to doing art, he's co-plotting.
0: Now, something to be aware of, I think we've probably touched on this in past episodes. We have indeed. The way Marvel tends to work, especially back in the day, was that you'd get sort of an outline from the writer, the artist would draw the pages, and then the writer would basically put in dialogue and narration and stuff.
1: Which meant there were a couple points at which this stuff could alter pretty dramatically.
0: In this specific scene, now Claremont and Byrne, they'd been clashing up until this point. But this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, Colossus is pulling up this tree trunk and uh, Byrne, with his art, his goal was to make it look like, ha, look how strong Colossus is. This is really easy for him. And with the narration, Claremont makes it clear that uh, Colossus is, you know, having to put his all into it. And he's just using all of his willpower and it's breaking his body and his mind. And Byrne, at this point, you know... Claremont had done that sort of thing a lot. He's like, you know what? Screw this. This is not working out. You keep changing the intent of my art, and I'm supposed to be the freaking co-plotter. What the hell?
1: And we're actually going to see this conflict play out in about 10 more years, almost exactly inverted with Chris Claremont and Jim Lee.
0: Totally. And so, Byrne's on the book for a couple more issues, but after that, he's gone, and we're going to see Dave Cockrum coming back to do some work and a lot of fill-in artists before we get to the next big artist. Who
1: is Paul Smith.
0: So, um, thanks to Colossus pulling up a tree, no more John Byrne. It's unfortunate.
1: This is why we can't have nice things, because Because Colossus pulls up trees.
0: That inconsequential bit of interesting trivia aside, we mostly are still going to be focusing on what's going on in Canada.
1: And the short version of that is that they go, they find the Wendigo, they fight the Wendigo, they take down the Wendigo, they save the woman and the kid... There's a bit where Snowbird turns into a white wolverine and goes berserk. And I want to point out, too, one of the things that makes me a little bit nuts about wolverine. A lot of people go into writing wolverine stories without really knowing what a wolverine is, assuming that maybe it's just a small wolf. It's not.
0: Wolverines are terrible.
1: Wolverines are terrible. They're these, they're these like stinky, super angry, all of the time, basically very large weasels.
0: And you actually can come back to that years later where it turns out the Wolverine and Sabretooth descend from a long line of wolf people and cat people. And oh God, what the hell, actually? Can we just
1: never talk about that?
0: Oh, we have to get to it. It's our duty, it's our chosen path. It is our malefic destiny. Rachel in fact. and Miles
1: selectively explain the X Men, but dismiss large, stupid portions of it. Can change the title,
0: <laughs> perhaps. So oh you were God. saying about Wolverines, Wolverines aren't
1: wolves; they're yes. weasels. And um, so Snowbird turns into an actual white Wolverine because remember she can turn into arctic creatures. I'm not sure if there are actually arctic Wolverines, but I would believe it.
0: This is why we never want to go to Canada. It's full of Arctic wolverines. There's seriously yeah, like one every square foot. I mean,
1: I, I assume that they can survive anywhere because they're the specific type of like hostile and unsavory that basically makes them an apex predator in any environment.
0: Right. Their Latin name is just fuck you.
1: Anyway, um, she turns into a white wolverine and she basically just goes full on feral.
0: What, what happens with that is actually really cool because wolverine figures, okay, this isn't really my thing, talking people down, being gentle. But you know what? I saw Cyclops do that with Jean, you know, back in the Dark Phoenix saga. When she was,
1: you know, the Phoenix Force, which is is much bigger than a Wolverine.
0: And so I'm going to try to do that. And I love little parts like this because what's really played up is the rivalry rivalry between Cyclops and Wolverine in in so much of X-Men. And it's easy to forget that Wolverine actually really respects Cyclops for the vast and majority of that. vice like, versa.
1: There are some amazingly good Cyclops and Wolverine friendship stories that we'll, we'll get to eventually. The other important thing in this is that this arc in particular, but a lot of this era, the immediately post-Dark Phoenix era, is about Wolverine basically in conflict with his nature. To what extent he has control over himself. To what extent he can be a superhero versus essentially... ...an animal.
0: Yeah, and that's actually something that really comes up around this era. Like, everybody talks about Wolverine's berserker rages. Those weren't really named, but not only named, they weren't really defined as a specific thing... ...other than this little fucker's mad all the time. Uh, Up until right around here. Like, the fact that he has these uncontrollable rages he flies into. This animalistic side to himself. And this is where we really start uh, seeing that come up for the first time.
1: Speaking of free will and animalistic actions... ...my favorite thing about this story arc... ...is a really throwaway detail... They take down Wendigo, he, t- he returns to his human form, and Vindicator says he became Wendigo of his own free will under Canadian law that renders him culpable for any crimes he committed as a Wendigo. And what this means is that Canada has laws that specifically account for crimes committed while one is a Wendigo. You know, I feel like this is an important part of Canadian culture.
0: Like you have you have Wolverines every square foot, you have people turning into Wendigo's all the goddamn time, shadowy organizations left and right. Canada is amazing. Yeah, Marvel
1: Canada is spectacular
0: yes and let's never go there because it scares me speaking of the end of this arc we see a couple of big things we see um, alpha flight actually being disbanded by the government i think it's like budget cuts or something and so they they become uh, free agents essentially after this storyline
1: alpha flight is going to stick around sometimes they work for the government sometimes they're just they're they're closer to a canadian equivalent of the x-men it's pretty casual and it really varies a lot over the years
0: Yeah, and we also see Blob, who's been put in prison for whatever the last thing he did that was not good, getting broken out of prison by Mystique, who is in the process of founding the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants.
1: Now, they're off to go try to assassinate Senator Kelly, which is going to be what launches the events of Days of Future Past. Again, we covered that in Episode 6, so we are instead going to skip ahead to X-Men 143, where we see the return of an old and somewhat unfortunate villain. Now, again, this is a period of about 10 issues, where, with the exception of Days of Future Past, we're not seeing a lot of big continuity, X-specific stories. They're fighting other people's villains, they're fighting Marvel team of villains, and in this case, they're fighting a one-off villain who's come back from the events of X-Men 96. Specifically, you may recall that in X-Men 96, uh, Cyclops disturbed an ancient alien cairn on the Xavier School property.
0: Just your everyday, regular ancient alien cairn, the the kind you'll find in any front or backyard.
1: This freed the Nagari, who are a bunch of, yeah, ancient semi-disembodied demons. And they thought they'd pretty much taken them out and sealed them back in, but it turns out there's one still around.
0: Uh, in fact, I think it's implied it's the same main one from X-Men 96. It just, you know, turned out it was, it was fine. It was under some rocks. It got better.
1: It is Christmas Eve, and the X-Men are variously celebratory. Uh, they are running around ambushing each other with mistletoe and getting ready to all go out.
0: Yeah, and there's actually some cool character moments here. So Mariko Yoshida, Wolverine's uh, lady friend from Japan, shows up and Nightcrawler does his whole like, haha, I am debonair. I teleport above you and you put mistletoe above you and kiss you.
1: And then Wolverine almost stabs him.
0: Like seriously, he almost does. Like I mentioned, the Berserker rage thing is a really big deal in X-Men continuity right And, now.
1: and a big theme from this era is Storm telling Wolverine to stop trying to kill people. It's being <laughs> like, Logan, no. Logan, no. No, Logan, no. Drop
0: it. Drop it. Put it down. He just to it with the rolled
1: up newspaper. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> and then we also see like the mood's getting kind of weird after that and Wolverine storms off saying oh man I'm super messed up and so uh, Kitty holds mistletoe over Colossus who she's had like this giant crush on since she since she met him and says Merry Christmas sexy and kisses him on the cheek and he blushes and it's adorable
1: she's very much sort of the little sister of the team at this point so this this this, this doesn't have the potentially creepy implications it could otherwise. Yeah
0: although Colossus is the youngest member of the X-Men aside from Yeah her. but
1: he's still like 18.
0: Right. That's and there's a, a huge gap exactly. especially at
1: those ages. All of the X-Men decide that they're going to go out and do Christmas Eve grown-up stuff, and being as how she is both a kid and Jewish, Kitty is like, yeah, I'm going to stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, so she stays home alone. Cyclops calls. They have a brief sort of depressing conversation because, you know, it's Christmas Eve and no one's home, and Cyclops is off brooding in hats.
0: But as he's brooding in hats, he also meets the ship captain of the Arcadia.
1: Now, in episode 11, we mentioned that a few people have asked us whether we like Cyclops better with Emma Frost or Jean Grey. And what we said at that point is that we had a third preference, who is Lee Forrester. This is her first appearance. She shows up during this arc. Lee Forrester is the captain of Aletis. Is that Aletis?
0: Aletis. I don't know how you actually pronounce that.
1: A-L-E-Y-T-Y-S. If you know how to pronounce this, please drop us a line. She is the captain of a boat that Scott signs onto. She is the fucking best. She will later on spend a lot of time just getting kind of a raw deal from the Marvel Universe, not being written terrifically. But at this point, she is ace as hell. Yeah.
0: That brief aside aside... Mostly in this issue, you're going to be focusing on Kitty and the X-Mansion just doing
1: her thing. Uh, reenacting aliens, specifically. So this is actually one of two issues in which Kitty functionally reenacts alien. And they're similar enough that I actually realized when I read through this that I'd, I'd sort of had them partially merged in my head. And I, I had thought that this was the, the issue where Lockheed shows up, which it is not. That comes later.
0: Right, that's with the brood, right?
1: Right, which this thing looks like. He's like a purple brood. Uh, it's
0: true. Like X-Men creepy they've got aliens, similar heads. They're, they're, they're big, scary reptile bug things.
1: We've talked before about Marvel in general at this point, borrowing a lot from contemporary genre fiction, and that's definitely the case with The Brood, and I think to some extent here. So she's alone in the house, this big nasty monster, which you know she's never seen before, shows up. Uh, she spends a while basically trying to get away from it, trying to get away from it, realizes fire damages it, hits it with the danger room, which is something that you see again and again in stories where someone breaks into the X-Men's house, which is that when something attacks you at home that you can't fight is to get the danger room to do it for you. And uh, she eventually will fry it with the Blackbird engines, trashing the mansion in the process.
0: Like severely trashing it. But throughout this process, as she's running away and trying to trick it and doubling back and phasing through things, Claremont loves his words. That's no surprise to anyone. <laughs> but we get a lot of uh, thought bubbles and captions and stuff that really let us get to know Kitty Pride. Yeah,
1: Kitty does more of the narration than characters usually get to. She's fun and, and she's interesting and she's thoughtful. And we've seen, we've seen this before, really, actually, during the Dark Phoenix saga when she was in the Hellfire Club stuff. She's, she's very good at thinking on her feet very fast.
0: Claremont writes her just so well. She is such a believable, like, smart, resourceful, brave 13-year-old who is all of those things without being a grown-up.
1: Um, the X-Men come back with, with her parents who are there to visit. At this point, she's cleaned up a little bit although the mansion's still pretty trashed.
0: Oh, wait, but I want to take a step back here because when they get to the mansion, they're like, oh, the lights are off. Is, is Kitty here? Is everything okay? And Xavier, normally he'd you know mind-scan the place or whatever, but he says, but there is a miasma of evil about the house that inhibits my telepathic abilities. It's like, oh, man, this never happens, baby. It's it's just too warm in here it's tonight. It's just the
1: miasma of evil.
0: Exactly. So Xavier, like, is he an ED commercial or something what's going on here
1: later on there's going to be a bunch of horses pulling his pickup truck
0: it's all very symbolic you see (laughs) so Kitty's fine Uh, there's a dead alien. The mansion is just, like, smashed, especially the Blackbird. Um, But yeah, it's a nice nice little done-in-one story, and while it does seem inconsequential, the character work with Kitty introducing us to her on her own terms for the first time is great.
1: Speaking of done-in-one stories, the next is one of the same, and in this one we're going to cut to the B-plot, which is uh, Cyclops and Lee Forrester running around outside of New Orleans.
0: Yeah, now, uh, this next issue opens up with characters we haven't seen. There's this sort of old dude in a swamp with a pistol contemplating suicide. His, His His wife has died a while back, and his life sucks, and two beings are drawn to him.
1: One of them is a guy named Despair. He is one of the Fear Lords. They also include Nightmare and a few others. He was created by the Dweller in Darkness. He made his first appearance not too long before this in an issue of Marvel Team-Up. And despair bores the hell out of me.
0: Yeah, he's sort of a general-purpose Marvel villain, and those don't always work so well, especially with the X-Men. It's not just
1: that. He's what I think of sort of as a magic feather villain. The enemy was inside you all along. They're these villains who are based around abstract concepts—Nightmare's another one—who basically exist to create setups where the X-Men have to fight them as extended metaphors for their own internal struggles. And while I love the soap opera of X-Men— part of why i love it is that it's always set against you know the counterbalance of of everything else that's going on and having it be both the action and the character stuff is a little bit much
0: But you know who's awesome is the other character, who is Man-Thing. And if you
1: think that we're not going to spend the rest of the episode making really juvenile Man-Thing jokes, you have not been paying attention because, oh man, Man Man-Thing.
0: I'm just going to say, there's a comic, you know, there's Giant Size X-Men number one, there's a comic called Giant Size Man-Thing number one.
1: Um, And actually, Bobby, who produces our episode, hosts an event called Geek Trivia in Portland, and the first time we went, uh, Giant Size Man-Thing number one was, I believe, the name of our team.
0: I think it should have stayed the name of our team forever.
1: I think we're all going to be Giant Size Man-Things in our hearts.
0: I don't think you should put your giant-sized Man-Thing in your heart. That seems like a way to really injure yourself. Anyway, so Man-Thing's deal, at first glance, he looks like Swamp Thing because, well, he's kind of a Swamp Thing. Yeah, he, is, he
1: is Swamp Thing, basically.
0: Yeah, he's an empath, and his, his, his big, like, superhero power is that he burns those who know fear. So he- what
1: you're telling me is he's basically Adam X, but with fear instead of blood.
0: Yes, that's, is that more 90s or less 90s? Less 90s. That's true.
1: Does he skateboard? Does he skateboard through the swamps?
0: Anyway, uh, man thing and despair show up, and despair is like, yes, yes, totally kill yourself because that would make me happy because my name is despair, spelled stupid.
1: And it makes me really sad that, that Claremont doesn't do what I really want him to do at this point, which is just to have how Jack Forrester turn and look straight at the reader and say, "Look upon my giant-sized man thing and despair."
0: Except despair is spelled all stupid. <laughs> yeah, words and, are cool
1: when you spell them with Y's. And
0: so despair's thing is he can like inflict fear upon people. So he inflicts fear upon man thing, and man thing, you know, he burns that which knows fear. So he basically sets himself on fire. And uh, listeners, I do just want to say if you ever experience a burning sensation in your giant sized man thing you should see a physician immediately
1: (laughs) (laughs) so anyway after his suicide lee forrester gets a phone call from her father
0: who's you know that last name forrester thing yeah her dad just totally killed himself because of despair on
1: panel it's pretty graphic too
0: so she gets a call from her father saying, "Hey, can can we come talk?" And she's like, "All right, let's go home." Hey, uh, Scott Summers, who is on my crew, who I'm getting to be friends with, you want to come with me? With
1: a heavy, heavy implication that later they will totally do it.
0: And so he's like, "All right, well, cool. You know, I'm just trying to be a normal person." Lee Forrester's pretty neat. I'm going to go with her.
1: But X Men can't have nice things.
0: No, they can't. Claremont loves to cut back and forth between what's going on not in the X Mansion and what's going on in the X Mansion. So we see the X Men cleaning up the damage that caused by Kitty's fight with a Nagai, and she's all sheepish and like bringing them sandwiches, and they're making fun of her, and at one point she just drops the plate of sandwiches and just says maybe I should have let that monster kill me and phases through a bunch of walls and runs away she's she's so 13 I love her so uh, Lee and Cyclops show up at her house to talk to her dad.
1: Really Lee and Scott at this point. He is he is not Cyclops at the moment.
0: And uh, Despair shows up. He's like, ha I'm Despair. I'm a creepy supervillain and kind of one note. And he proceeds to turn in their perceptions to turn Lee's house into like this giant gothic castle spire thing. You know, say
1: what you will about Despair. He is committed to the gag.
0: You know, it's like you can make the best food in the world, but if the presentation's not good, what's the goddamn point? And actually, this, this is significant right here because this is the first time that Scott ever remembers what happens with his parents' plane blowing up and he and his brother parachuting out of it.
1: Oh, yeah. I think this is the first appearance of that scene. And that's interesting. And I was, I was thinking about that going through because I, I mentioned when we talked about Gabriel Summers a really long time ago that this is, this is one of those scenes that has been redrawn more times than almost any other single scene in X-Men. And it has, as far as I know, never been significantly retconned.
0: It's true. I mean, I'm sure there's, like, some issue of Deadpool where Deadpool's in the corner doing something silly You or something, occasionally but... see
1: minor continuity errors out of it. So, like, what, when it's an evolution, for some reason, they've got two parachutes, but they just give one to each kid instead of having the grown-ups jump out carrying the kids. Well, I guess
0: we're gonna die. <laughs> right? Which is, like, Later, the, boys. the most
1: gratuitous death ever. And that happens occasionally. Someone, someone forgets and does that by accident. But that's really the only significant difference you see.
0: Yeah, and now this is gonna be significant really soon, because in the comics, Cyclops is gonna find out that 70s space pirate extraordinaire Corsair is actually his dad. Who survived this uh, this plane crash? So the fact but that it's not coming, yet. yeah, but the fact that it's coming up now is no accident because this is Claremont, and he doesn't make mistakes like that. Everything is there for a reason, right?
1: Again, all about the long game. Well, Scott, Scott basically
0: uses his memories of Gene and the strength of their relationship to kind of break past the fear. Um, afterward, after he does that and sort of empowers Man-Thing. So,
1: would you say that Scott's memories of his, uh, previous romantic relationship galvanize Man-Thing into action or even stimulate Man-Thing into action?
0: Well, Man-Thing is certainly much more powerful than it was a few minutes ago. (laughs) Uh, yeah, and so Man-Thing, you know, then sets despair on fire and the place blows up and it burns down. Um, but Scott's explanation- he says, the demon's mistake was attacking me through my memories of Jean. Through her, I faced the best and the worst of humanity. I learned the true meaning of courage and love. Yielding to you despair would have been the ultimate denial and betrayal of that love. Aww. Scott's, like, the best boyfriend ever. I want him to well, be my boyfriend. Well... Okay, he's also the worst boyfriend ever, but he's really romantic and sincere, and I appreciate that. He
1: tries that. really hard.
0: You know, that's worth something, I think.
1: That is worth something, but it doesn't always really translate to outcome.
0: The house burns down, and uh, Scott and Lee are pretty sure that Despair and man are both dead. But no, Man-Thing, he just needed a rest after that kind of action, after that uh, climactic... A r- refractory
1: period, if you will.
0: But yes, it's because it's not too long before man rises again. I... I think, I, I think we're done. I, I think on that joke, perhaps we are spent for Man, now. Man,
1: nothing just keeps on coming up.
0: Oh, I'm really, uh, this is where we earn the little red E next to our podcast name and iTunes.
1: So I I want to I say, we, we talk about, you know, defining moments and characters and things that we really see set the tone. Um, Miles and I were like 12 and 13 when we got to know each other, and I feel like our, our kind of collective sense of humor kind of just sort of drops off about there. It's true. So yeah, dick jokes forever.
0: Dick jokes forever. The Miles and Rachel story. <sighs> Yeah. Okay, so we have one more, uh, one more arc in this period of X-Men.
1: Now, we talked about how Despair was kind of committed to a supervillain bit. This arc is about a supervillain who puts that to shame. This arc is about the best supervillain in the goddamn Marvel Universe.
0: A supervillain who was born named Victor Von Doom. That was on the birth certificate, and he accepted that, let's say it again, malefic destiny.
1: He didn't just accept it, he embraced it, he grew into it. Man, I love Doctor Doom so much. Seriously. Doctor Doom is ridiculous. We've talked about Magneto delivering ridiculousness with gravitas. This is what I think of sort of as the Vincent Price trick. Dr. Doom takes bombasticism to a level untouched by any other character in X-Men, Marvel, or I would argue any other fiction ever. He is very good at it. He is ridiculous. He has a castle full of robot replicas of himself and his enemies and some of his friends. He is the ruler of a small nation. He dresses in a full suit of armor. He also has, you know, At least one PhD.
0: He's a sorcerer and a scientist simultaneously. He's.
1: he's, I I love him. I love him so much. I went to Universal Studios in Florida. I have friends who work there last winter, and my entire goal this trip was was to get a picture-hugging Dr. Doom, which I did.
0: So uh, how does Doom factor into this one? What's the premise of this arc?
1: A while ago, we glossed over X-Men 123 and 124. These are issues that introduce, at least in X-Men, the supervillain Arcade.
0: And we're going to gloss over Arcade to a degree again this time, because we- promised uh chris sims that we would do an arcade episode with him at one point and we are we're holding ourselves to that Chris did us a
1: solid and filled in for miles as a guest host and he he asked us to hold off on doing an in detail thing about specifically that first arcade x-men story all you need to know at this point is that arcade is an assassin and he's specifically basically a theme park assassin he's a guy who's really into basically games and assassination as a game he's super rich he has set up this place called murder world
0: i don't recommend bringing your children there Unless you really don't like them.
1: It'll be a learning experience. So his standard deal is that he he kidnaps um, people who are close to his targets to lure them to Murder World. And then they have to run through it. And if they beat the system, then, you know, they get to get out and live. He's not the supervillain who packs a gun and shoots them after they beat the Death Trap. He's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. He's got an assistant named Miss Locke. They're such utter weirdos, but they're such utterly complimentary weirdos. I, I love their relationship. I love Arcade and Miss Locke.
0: Yeah, you were talking about Arcade as sort of a Harley Quinn before when we were talking. Yeah, it seems she's, almost she's like they're, they're both Harley Quins.
1: Um, No, because Miss Locke is super serious. Like She's very serious. She's very severe. She's his assistant, but you get the impression that she's kind of the one who keeps the place running. It's a plot point later on that every year on his birthday, specifically as a birthday gift to him, she takes over Murder World and sets it up to try to kill him.
0: That's so romantic.
1: They're a good team. They like each other. And in this case, uh, what happens is Miss Locke kidnaps a bunch of the X-Men's loved ones to Murder World, and her goal is to force them to rescue Arcade, who has been kidnapped by Dr. Doom.
0: Right. And this was for some slight that Arcade had against Dr. Doom. I think it's referenced in one of the editor's footnotes that it was in some other issue. But the point is, Dr. Doom has Arcade. Miss Locke's like, hey, you X-Men, you guys break him out or else I'm going to kill all these people that you care about.
1: So who are Arcade's hostages this time?
0: Okay, so we've heard of, uh, I think, all of these people. Um, There's Candy Southern, who's Angel's girlfriend since way back when. There's Mr. and Mrs. Gray, Jean Gray's parents. God, their lives are terrible. Right? like your daughter got killed, and now you're going to get kidnapped by a crazy assassin. Sure, why not? Uh, Moira McTaggart, um, um, Stevie Hunter— And we also have Amanda Sefton. Now, we're going to get to the annual where she is revealed later.
1: That is the Nightcrawler's Inferno um, story, X-Men annual number four.
0: Yeah, so uh, Amanda Sefton is an airline flight attendant that Nightcrawler's been dating for a little while. And in that annual, we find out she's really his childhood friend and lover, Jermaine Zardos.
1: We've also got one more character who's going to eventually show up and become very, very important in X-Men, and that is Colossus's little sister, Ilyana Rasputin.
0: Oh, man, she's going to be a big deal later on. But for right now, she's just basically the most stereotypical possible little Russian girl you can imagine ever being come up with by an early 1980s American writer.
1: Adorable, innocent braids furry hat.
0: Exactly. Um, so, yeah, they're all kidnapped. They're all put in these giant wrapped presents like you do if you arcade. And um, the X-Men are trying to figure out what to do. Now Wolverine says like, hey, let's just kill Miss Locke because if we give in to her demands, she's just going to do this again.
1: Which is true. She totally will. Repeatedly.
0: Yeah, but Xavier's like, no, we're not doing that. We have a plan.
1: And this is an ongoing series. So you really can't just take out supervillains like that. You're cutting off our future options, Wolverine. Come on. Start thinking like a team player.
0: Exactly. Start thinking about the bottom line.
1: Think like Claremont. Instead, they decide they're going to put together two teams. The current main team is going to go break into Doom's castle. Um, Doom is has been deposed. At this point, he's not actually running Latveria, but he's he's still got a castle. He's still got an island. He's still got doombots. And the second team is going to be made up of former X-Men members who Xavier re-recruits. He tries to get Cyclops, but he can't get through to him.
0: Oh, yeah. There's like some weird, uh, what is it, a shift in Earth's magnetic field that makes his telepathy not work?
1: I wonder what could cause a thing like that. Baby,
0: it's not you. I'm I'm just tired. I'm just tired. We'll try again in the morning. It's it's just
1: a shift in Earth's magnetic field. (laughs) Are you sure you're not feeling fear? Because, you know, fear does affect the man thing. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh um, Xavier's recruiting these former X-Men.
1: And he's he's recruiting basically retired members. So we've got um Iceman who's in college and he's just wrapping up a twenty page paper.
0: He's a little beardy, it's really cute. He
1: is, yeah, he's he's totally got the tired college student five o'clock shadow. Uh Banshee, who still doesn't have his powers, he's already on his way to rescue Mora. And Havoc and Polaris, who are grad students at this point. And I want to talk about them a little bit. Havoc tends to get kind of a raw deal in X-Men. Seriously. Right? Well, cause his whole thing and a lot of the premise and what's driven the character within the Marvel universe is that he's Cyclops' even shittier little brother. Oh, oh, man. The combination of the older brother whose achievements he never live up to and also the older brother whose general lack of basic social skills will forever define both of them in the eyes of the Marvel Universe. He's stuck with this double whammy. So I really like Havoc. I think he's a really interesting character. And he, I think he's also a kind of sad character because what you see in this and in a lot of other issues is that he has goals. He has a life that he cares about. He's he's a grad student. He's, um I think, a, a geophysicist. And every time he goes and tries to live this life, which is, you know, which he has set up outside of, you know, the, the shadow of the X-Men, he is the guy who is trying so hard to have his own identity. And when he ends up in charge of team after team after team and like he's stuck in this, it's those positions are him giving up.
0: He's like, fine. You He's want like, me to be a okay, leader? Fuck, okay. Fuck. I'll run X Factor.
1: Fine. Whatever. I'll run. Fine. For, because obviously, I am not going to get a 10 track position when I have to go fucking fight Magneto every ten minutes. So, so that that group, the second-string team Havoc, Polaris, Iceman, and Banshee—are going to head to Murder World and free the hostages there. Meanwhile, the A-team of Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Colossus, and Angel, and Angel, um, will head to wherever Doom is setting up shop these days, and try to free Arcade.
0: Now, I like the way they start this. They basically send Storm in, like, diplomatically, like, hey, let's talk about this. We gotta free this guy.
1: And Doom basically goes, wowza!
0: Yeah, he's immediately impressed. I'm not gonna say he immediately falls in love with her, but he's like, hey, this is a woman who is who is worthy of me, essentially.
1: And they legitimately hit it off. Like, it's not just him.
0: Oh, I love this part. So he invites her to dinner. He's like, my chef sets a superb table. He dares not do otherwise.
1: I want to be internet friends with Dr. Doom. <laughs> I do. I do. I want to have like weird 3 a.m. conversations with him.
0: At Victor Vaughn on Twitter.
1: I do feel like he'd be a really good friend to have like weird middle of the night existential angst conversations with. So you'd be like, you know, I'm, I'm worried. I'm worried. My career's not going to go anywhere. I, have, I can't sleep. And he'd just be like, I sacrificed three Doom bots to imprison Reed Richards today. He'd be like, okay, perspective. Exactly.
0: Um, so, yeah, they they have this nice dinner. And, of course, Dr. Doom has these little, like, monitors built into his table connected to security cameras where he's watching the X-Men break in. It's like, dude, leave your job at home. Come on, just take a break.
1: Again, see, I feel like he would get my, my issues with this stuff.
0: So, it, it quickly becomes clear to Storm that uh, Arcade is not exactly a prisoner. He's sort of a guest, you know. And
1: also that Doom knows exactly what the X-Men are up to and that there are three others trying to break in while Storm has dinner with him. So, basically, he chrome plates her
0: yeah, he like uses this little ball thing he throws at her that covers her in chrome.
1: It turns her into organic chrome, but and and slows down her metabolism enough to basically make her into a statue. He specifically says it's basically the same deal as as Colossus transformation. but it also sort of slows down time and traps her in statue form. Now, remember, Storm is claustrophobic. This does not go over well.
0: Wait, but so what happens next? So so he he covered her in chrome. Like, So next, it's what? New rims. You raise the body a bit. You get some underlighting in there.
1: He puts in some hydraulics. <laughs>
0: this is the best mental image ever. Uh, fan art, someone, please yeah. do it. Yeah, you
1: know, I feel like actually that's kind of what defines the 90s is, is tricking out superheroes like fancy cars.
0: Oh, that's totally right. I wonder if Dr. Doom is behind that.
1: This is basically X-Force right here. This is the defining pr- premise of X-Force. This is where it starts. Superheroes so. with spinning rims.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, Storm starts freaking out, understandably, because she's claustrophobic and she's trapped in this, like, metal skin. So the weather patterns start getting a little nuts, start getting a little nuts more and more and more.
1: And then, basically, she she breaks weather.
0: Yeah, so we see Cyclops and Lee Forrester. Their ship is capsized. They're trapped on this this desert island. Yeah,
1: they ship wrecked in the Bahamas because of again storm freaking out somewhere in Northern Europe. It's, yeah, that's that's the scale this is happening.
0: And on. we see we see NORAD calling the president. Um, I, I'm Do we see Peter Corbeau? Peter he Corbeau. Involved? He's busy swimming off. He's the out Indian, surfing. He, he's swimming the Indian Ocean right now. He
1: waits for moments like this.
0: That dude's intense. So, yeah, the X-Men are all put into these death traps by Doom, and Arcade's like, hey, these aren't creative. What's going on with these things?
1: And Doom basically says, okay, yeah, you know, these these aren't really death traps. These are set up as tests. And Arcade's death traps, everyone's got a personalized scenario, but the only way to get out of them is basically to break the system. Doom's death traps all have a way out, but to get to them, the X-Men have to basically do things that they didn't consider themselves previously capable of. He's not trying to kill them. He's trying to push them and test them and figure out exactly how much of a threat they are.
0: Because, yeah, Doom hasn't fought the X-Men before. They're new to him. And Doom's Doom's like Batman. He wants to understand every potential phone every potential way.
1: I want to point out that Angel's death trap specifically involves dodging air lasers because it's Angel and he only does one thing. <laughs> hey, Angel,
0: go, don't get hit by something, okay? Right. (laughs) So
1: so that uh, Wolverine has to deal with sensory flashing lights, assault in a zero gravity chamber. Nightcrawler is trapped in a windowless room that the only way out of is to teleport. But of course, he doesn't know what's around him. So there's a decent chance that he's going to teleport into solid rock and get telefragged. And
0: I love the way he handles this. He's like, all right, well, I guess if I teleport two to three miles straight up, there's probably nothing there. And of course, this damn near kills him because that's way beyond what he can normally do. Um, um, yeah,
1: we'll see. We'll see that p- power develop over time. But at this point, he can hardly teleport with another person, and he can't teleport very far.
0: Yeah, and so he does that, and then you know the, the winds are all gusty and stuff because of because storms created a hurricane essentially, and so he sort of glides on the wind. He waits for an updraft and like spreads his arms and legs to, to fall uh, to, to sort of move upward and fly to where he needs to be. Which I is re-
1: basically how Peter Corbo spends Saturday nights. It's
0: true. I feel like Nightcrawler should be chugging a Mountain Dew at this point and like on rollerblades that are also on a skateboard themselves.
1: So anyway, um, in Murder World, meanwhile, the other X-Men get through. They capture Miss Locke. They free everyone else. Uh, Iceman's got some great Silver Age dialogue. Uh,
0: That Miss Locke is one peach of a customer, you know? I'd sooner waltz with a cobra. That's such a rogue line. But it's also such a 60s anybody line.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because he's been away from the team for a while, so he hasn't learned to talk like a non-Stan Lee character. So Storm, at this point... Has built up a hurricane and she is she is on the verge of essentially destroying the world. She's that powerful. There are a lot of very direct dark phoenix parallels built up, even to the point of her having her own fancy font. They talk her down successfully, and Doom, because he is a goddamn gentleman, apologizes and basically says, Look, I really liked you. We had a good time before I chrome plated you. This was business. At the same time, you know, your team members were breaking into my house. Can we still be friends? And she's like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay.
0: We'll wipe the slate clean. The ball's in your court. Um, this
1: starts a long, long tradition of every supervillain ever falling in love with Storm.
0: At one point, Dracula falls in love with her. No joke. I feel like you know you've really made it when Dracula falls in love with you.
1: Okay, questions.
0: So this is from David. This says, I have a question about the opening, some variation of which I was sure it was going to be asking the all question spectacular. Is Miles always the one with the what because Rachel knows more or has read more X-Men comics? Or is it just a dynamic you decided on for your, quote, characters on the show? Even if it was just an artistic choice and not based on fact, I'm curious, who's read more X-Men? And just in case the answer to this question is different, who knows more about Marvel's Merry Mutants?
1: So it is an aesthetic choice. Most of of the episode is ad-libbed, we work from an outline, but the cold opens are scripted. And something we figured out very early on is that I'm a lot better at patter... And Miles is a lot better at making that what sound entertaining. There's an episode where I do it, and it's not nearly as good.
0: Yeah, Rachel talks fast, and I yell is what it comes down to.
1: As far as who knows who's read more, we've been sharing a comics collection for about 13 years. So Mm -hmm. we've, we've read about the same amount, but in really different ways.
0: Yeah. So like, um, Rachel, I know you You do a lot of research. You'll you'll be interested in something. You'll just get down this continuity rabbit hole and just find like, you know, every reference to it like you're following a Google search.
1: And I also started out binge reading X-Men. I didn't start reading X-Men until college. And what got me started was basically you bringing up all of your and your dad's long boxes. So I, I read the first 30 years of X-Men basically in one summer. For a long time, like my relationship with the X-Men was this sort of ongoing intensive catch-up. Um, I tend to get into things in a lot of detail and a lot of minutiae really immersively. I do a lot of research. I am really, really into crunchy details.
0: Yeah. And for me, I'd say the main advantage that, that I have um, is that I was reading a lot of the stuff as it came out, maybe from the uh, late 80s to the late 90s when I stopped reading comics for a while. So that kind of context, knowing what the industry was like at the time, that's something that I can bring to the table a bit more. So what's your next question?
1: Uh, So the Noir guy asks, how did Storm become leader of the X-Men over Cyclops, and who do you think is the better leader?
0: Okay, so there are two major times when they've sort of uh, replaced one another as leader. The first is right around here when Cyclops leaves after Jean dies, and she's sort of nominated because she's the most qualified.
1: And also arguably the sanest.
0: Yes. And the second is in uh, number two hundred one. And Storm actually has no powers at this point, and she and Scott are basically fighting for leadership of the team,
1: which is a bad choice on a number of levels because it's not primarily a tactical position. It's
0: true, but she actually ends up beating him despite her lack of powers and runs the team for a while after that.
1: Because again, Storm with no powers is a million times more badass than anyone else, including people with powers.
0: Right now, there have been other teams that she's led, like in the nineties, Cyclops led the Blue Squad of the X Men. uh, Storm led the Gold Squad, and she's uh, run a couple separate teams. who's a better leader, you know, I guess my take on it is if you're talking like tactics, if you're talking battle and military stuff, and also if you're talking the big mutant issues, then Cyclops is probably your guy. But if you're talking leading a team in unusual circumstances and really bringing them together as a team and really pulling out the humanity, I think it's all about Storm. So different circumstances, different better leaders.
1: Yeah, there are times when you see them basically co-running the X-Men, and those tend to be the points where the team is at its strongest because their abilities complement each other really, really well. Um, their leadership abilities specifically.
0: Totally. So, all right. third question. This is from Michael C. Morona. Hey, I know that guy. Can you catalog all the many patented danger room tried and tested maneuvers such as the fastball special from Colossus and Wolverine?
1: Now, we went through a lot of comics to answer this, and what we learned is that the only one of these moves that actually has a name is the fastball special. This is when Colossus throws Wolverine at something.
0: Right. But why let that stop us? We because asked. there
1: are a lot of other recurring moves. So we've, won- we've gone through, we've cataloged some of the most frequent ones, and we've named a handful. If you've got names for the others, please weigh in. Again, we're on Twitter as explain the and blog at rachelandmiles.com with comments. Or you can um, send these to us at com.
0: Okay, so w- what are the other ones here?
1: Well, we've got the fastball special, and there's a direct variation on that, which is where someone throws Kitty through robots, which we've can, we you know, we've named the phaseball special.
0: Uh, other ones. There's the thing where Wolverine has his claws out during a fight but doesn't cut anyone. That's the most comics-coded here at what he does.
1: The thing where Cyclops takes out, like, six bad guys with ricochets from one optic blast, the is the cue ball special. We also see him do that on pool tables a lot.
0: The thing where Iceman tries to be awesome and ends up just beating up all his teammates by accident. That's the slippery slope.
1: The one where an x Men uses their powers to prepare lunch or another meal, which is the blue plate special special. <laughs>
0: Uh, there's the thing where Kitty wrecks everything by accidentally phasing through it. The
1: thing where everyone switches opponents mid-fight, and that's what turns the tide of the battle.
0: The thing where Nightcrawler is awfully dashing about beating people up.
1: The thing where Storm's claustrophobia saves the day.
0: The thing where Angel just dodges shit for like an hour instead of participating in the fight.
1: The thing where Xavier fakes his own death.
0: The thing where Cypher and or Kitty and or Liana and or Wolverine do the ain't I a stinker thing from the control booth of the danger room.
1: The thing where Cyclops uses his optic blasts to slow or stop inertia or a fall.
0: The thing where Storm has no powers and still kicks someone's ass into next week.
1: And the one where Colossus and Wolverine throw themselves at Magneto every goddamn time, despite being made of metal.
0: Alright, I think that's all the time we have for today.
1: Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded at The Rose Way in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out online at thing.com.
0: And also check out our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have a visual companion post for each episode we do. There's a lot of fan art and all sorts of other exciting nonsense.
1: If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher and check out our shop at rachelandmiles.redbubble.com for t-shirts, stickers, posters, greeting cards, and our very new Chris Haley Ye-